Well, as I've gotten the privilege of already saying uh, early in our service, glad you're here uh, this morning with us as we, uh, as this spring and summer, we've been going through the book of Mark together. We have been looking uh, at the center of that book, the Savior Jesus Christ. Uh, As we've joined him, remember, on the ground and tried to envision ourselves standing side and side, shoulder to shoulder in this uh, quick, action-packed gospel. That is, you heard it again today, immediately, immediately that word shows up throughout uh, this gospel because of its fast-paced nature. Last week we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, such an absolutely, really mind-blowing, fantastic display of, of, of Christ's power, of His compassion, and I would say His deity as well. Well, today we've got another uh, fantastic episode from Jesus' life, from his disciples' uh, journey with him throughout those years. It's another water episode, another uh, scene that takes place upon the water after our sermon some weeks back from Mark 4. Do you remember? Jesus calmed the storm, uh, calmed the storm on the water. After that sermon a few weeks ago, I was given a little card that was modeled after the World War II British Uh, inspirational posters, the ones that said, keep calm and carry on. This one said, keep calm, Jesus is in the boat. I thought that was perfect uh, fit for that that, that sermon. You remember that intense scene uh, upon the water. The storm was raging, and Jesus calms the oceans, or the wave and the wind, with just a couple words. Be still. And we talked about it. It was immediately calmed. Not wind died down and waves naturally died down. It was immediately calmed. I love the phrase, keep calm, Jesus is in the boat. The disciples, in that fear and astonishment, do you remember from that that story, they asked the question, who then is this? That even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, they recognized his voice, remember? He created them, his voice did. And they recognized it again when he said, be still. Well, today, that question they asked, Jesus, he answers that question again for them upon the water as he comes to his disciples in another water scenario, another storm, as he walks out to them. He walks out to them on water. We're so familiar with that, probably hearing that story, we, we lose the impact of that. I hope we're going to rediscover it again today in this passage. Why is it, do you think, that Jesus, that God, that uh, Jesus with the disciples likes to have some of his most intense, dramatic interactions with his disciples on the water? You ever thought about that? Why is that? In fact, if you think about the Bible even, God likes to work through water, doesn't he? He just does. You think back, you've got, we've got the flood, <laughs> a lot of water. We've got the parting of the Red Sea down to uh, baptism today and Jesus calling himself the living water. He loves to work through water. I think there's a couple of reasons, a couple today in particular that apply to our passage. Here's the first one. I think there's something about large bodies of water that can make you and I, even as beautiful as they are, can make us feel helpless, overwhelmed, that can make you feel very small, that make you feel needy, which provides the setting in which God works in the Scripture. I think that is one. I was reading Eric Larson's great book uh, called Dead Wake, 
last week. Uh, it's the story of the sinking of the uh, Lusitania. You remember that story? Uh, larger than Titanic. Largest uh, liner at that time. And as they were crossing the Atlantic, they were sunk by a uh, German U-boat submarine, which brought, ended up bringing the U.S. into World War I. And the story's riveting. They're out on the Atlantic Sea, thousands of people in this boat. And as you read it, you're kind of pulled into the story, and it, it took 18 minutes, that's it. 18 minutes for the largest passenger ship at that time to sink off the coast of Ireland after being hit by one German torpedo. That's it. Just one. Here's a quote, uh, some quotes from third officer Bestick on that day who lived to record his story. Third officer Bestick, still aboard, felt the ship make a peculiar lurching moment. He looked down at the deck. This is when they're already turned about like this. An all-swallowing wave, not unlike a surf comber on a beach, was rushing up the boat deck, enveloping passengers, boats, that's lifeboats, and everything that lay in its path he wrote. A mass wail rose from those it engulfed. All the despair, terror, and anguish, anguish of hundreds of souls passing into eternity composed that awful cry. Now there's something about the beauty of water, isn't there? Crater Lake, Atlantic Ocean, but there's also an eeriness. There's also a danger. There's also an overwhelming helpless helplessness it can make you feel, which I think happened for them and the disciples. Or who'd want to be this guy? <laughs> Would you want to be that guy? <laughs> Those are pictures taken this week by a drone. He had no idea until he got out of the water that a great white had swam under his uh, little surfboard there. He had no idea. Humans can feel very helpless on water. We're going to see that in our dramatic scene this morning. That's the first reason I think God likes to work on water, because it makes humans feel very needy, and the disciples become very needy. Here's the second one, I think. I think, that, I think that the metaphor of the disciples in the ship lends itself easily to thinking about the church in a boat, or, uh, or on a rocky sea, or our own lives as a series of storms riding in a rocking boat, and artists throughout church history have portrayed the, the, the story that way, the church in a boat. So whether it's your storm-tossed life this morning or the cultural storm the church finds herself in or just about any crisis you are in right now, whatever it is, Jesus has one clear message for us this morning from this passage. It's this. He is God. The great I am. And while following him on the, uh, in life on the sea into obedience and following him as a disciple may bring challenges, it brings an even greater joy to follow him in the storms of life. And as we think through this today, and it makes our way from our heads to our hearts, which I pray it does, as we do that, it's going to enable us to respond differently to just the general storms of life. And even some of the great crises that come in your life, in my life, as we're going to look at three takeaways. So grab your outline. Hopefully you've got your text open to Mark 6. We're going to look at three takeaways about Jesus from this eerie night at sea, we're calling it, because it was. 
It was an eerie night at sea. Here's the first takeaway we're going to think through. Jesus directs our course. And not only that, prays for our crisis. He directs our course and prays for our crisis. Remember, this is just after the feeding of the 5,000. And I remember in John's recording of that, at that moment they, they had wanted to instantly make Jesus an earthly king. Uh, Mark didn't record it, but John did. The same story. Let's set him up as a king. Get him on the throne. Let's, let's gather the people. Let's, let, let's have a, a revolution maybe. The king is here. But Jesus knows it's not his time. Jesus knows his throne comes after a cross, doesn't he? And that hadn't happened yet. And Jesus knows even in that moment that he needed, after the feeding of the 5,000, to, to get his disciples out of there. They needed to get out of there before even themselves, they bought into that earthly throne narrative. They could have gotten swept up just as easily into that and derailed uh, Christ's plan. And so he takes control, Jesus does now. He takes control of the situation pretty forcefully. And he directs and he commands even, it's strong language, he commands the disciples to get into the boat. Look at verse 45. Immediately, he made, he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. He had trouble, it's pretty clear from that verse, he had trouble getting the disciples into the boat. He struggled. There was a moment there where he's not, he's saying, get in the boat, guys, and they're not really listening or they're out doing things amongst the crowd. They had just seen something amazing happen. Remember that crowd. The miracle of producing bread out of a few, uh, five loaves. Thousands were around. There's probably a celebration given the fact that they're wanting to make him king. Picture that in your mind now. And the disciples are probably thinking, what an amazing ministry opportunity, Jesus. You're, we're here. They're saying you're going to be king. Let's capitalize on this. Let's take advantage of it. All these people are here. And Jesus has to force them into the boat, and he probably even shoves it off the shore himself. Go, get out of here. Get out of here. This is not the right place or time for this. Jesus, the all-powerful, all-knowing God makes his disciples row into a storm. And they've been rowing, as the story uh, uh, communicates to us, for seven or eight hours by the time probably Jesus arrives, and they'd only gone a few miles off offshore and off course, too. He, let me repeat that again, he sends them into the storm. Jesus does it. He is directing their course. He's directing them. But the disciples too, even probably after a bit of grumbling and complaining and probably pushing back, they finally acquiesce. And so they obey too, they do. They could have revolted and said, no way, this thing's happening now, Jesus. But they obeyed and acquiesced. So Jesus' direction now and their obedience leads them into suffering. Jesus' direction and their obedience leads them into trouble, leads them into the storm. I want you to think about that for a minute. Let's think about that. Obedience will at times 
cause you sorrow? Suffering. Your commitment to Jesus Christ will make you vulnerable to things that a heart that is uncommitted to Christ will never experience. But then you also, without that obedience and following, wouldn't get the opportunity to see him work either. That the disciples got. That we get when we stay on course. I mean, they could have stayed on shore, and they probably would have had full bellies, a warm bed, a dry bed on that night. Some people would have put them up somewhere. They could have. But the blessing was out on the water. The blessing, uh, God's acting, God's showing up was out on the water. Jesus sent them into the storm because he had a redemptive purpose. He was going to use it in their life. In the same way, he uses our own trials, our suffering, when we follow in obedience. He was going to show up literally in a, way they, in a way they couldn't imagine. They never would have guessed this, what was going to happen. Would you have? Yeah, he's, he's going to show up and he'll probably be walking on water, don't you think, guys? I mean, they would have thought, you're crazy. They would have thrown that disciple out of the boat if somebody said that. He's going to show up in a way that's going to forever leave an impression of God in flesh on their hearts and minds. It means that you and I, too, we do not head out into the storm of life without the sovereign, providential, caring hand of Jesus directing our course. Whatever comes, whatever comes. So here's what we do. We trust and obey. We trust and obey as Jesus sent his disciples out and shows up in the middle of their crisis to work, we too, we trust and obey when storms come, when trials come. But the text goes even further. It goes even further to reinforce for us this caring direction of Jesus. What does he do? They're out in the storm, and what's Jesus doing? Did you catch that? What's he do, go and do? He, he, he goes up to pray. He goes up to pray. You might think, well, come on, Jesus. Get out there with your guys. They're out there. You're up, uh, there's no storm where you are. You're up uh, on the hilltop praying. Get out there with your guys. But when you realize, as Jesus knew, that life in its entirety is a battle, a storm, there is nothing better that he could have been doing at that moment than praying. Nothing better. When we know that there's a spiritual war that rages on and there's a war that rages in our heart for loving God and yet following our own sinful desires, there's nothing better he could have been doing at that moment than praying for his disciples and praying for himself. Look at um, verses 46 to 48. And after he'd taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. So they're out there. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. He prays. He bows. He's probably on his knees or face before the Lord. 
Anytime crisis comes up in Jesus' life or his disciples' life, he prayed. He prayed. So the one who directs our life is also in constant communication with God the Father. So the one who's plotted your course is also in direct communication with God the Father. And I guarantee in that moment, he was praying for those disciples at that moment. In that crisis that they were going through. Don't you know that Jesus prays for you too? Do you know that? Jesus prays for you too. Just like he did his disciples. And even still right now, he prays for you. By first name, with intimate knowledge of what's going on in your life, Jesus at this moment is praying for you. Here's a couple of verses. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, but I've prayed for you. Simon, that your faith may not fail. And that you there, like it is in most places in the Bible, that's not singular, that's, pure, that's plural. Jesus isn't just praying just for Simon. He's praying for all his disciples. How about Hebrews 7.25? Therefore, he's able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. You know what that means? He's a go-between. He cares enough to be that bridge between you and God the Father. He cares enough to be constantly in that place of intercession for you and praying for you to the Father. Here's the reality. Right now, whatever you're going through, Jesus is interceding for you. The sovereign hand of this universe is directing your course and praying for you right now. That's ultimate reality. That's what's taking place. So we can live and trust and obey because of these two truths that we know. This story tells us. So don't give up hope. Don't give up hope. The author of life is speaking words for you right now to the Father. So don't give up hope and obey. It may feel like today, it may look like today you're in a sinking ship. The waves coming over the side, listing and turning. But Jesus is praying because he cares, but he also sees. He sees. And you, don't, you can't see him right now, but he sees you. Did you notice what happened in the story? It says Jesus saw them making headway painfully. Not quite sure, but it's possible that it means that from the hilltop, with divine goggles on in some way, he's seeing what's going on. And he's God. We know he knew it was happening. But it, I mean, it, it leaves that up to the possibility that there's this divine moment, not that he's on the shore and literally, but he's seeing from the mountain while he's praying what's going on to, with the disciples. He sees with a supernatural knowledge from the mountaintop. He sees their crisis. He sees their suffering. He knows exactly what is taking place. He knows how many drops of water have come into the boat even. He sees it all, and it's the same for you. He sees. He knows what is going on right now with you. He knows. i got to believe that. 
Don't you need that? Like, how do we get through a day or the trials that I know some of you right now are going through without knowing that a caring, sovereign hand is watching everything and directing it and praying for you? And what he shows them there, they would never have seen but for their obedience of that command to get in the boat. I like how Kent Hughes described it. He said this. He said, never obey Christ, and you may miss some of life's contrary winds. It means you'll, you'll stay out of some trouble. You'll stay out of some storms. But you also never know the winds of the Holy Spirit in your sails, bearing you on in service and power, and I would add to that obedience. You'll never get that. You'll miss out on that. Those disciples didn't get in that boat. They never would have seen Jesus walk on water. They obeyed, and they got to see something amazing. So trust and obey, and you will see God work. He'll be the wind in your sails, so to speak, the compass to guide you, the port that you'll rest in. He will show himself to be faithful, and that's what he showed them. And the world, really, through the record now that we get to read and look at because of that, it's our second takeaway today, and really it's our biggest. Jesus shows in deed and name in this moment, he is God in flesh. That's what we're seeing. He shows in deed and in name that he is God in flesh. We pick it up in 48 through 51 again. He saw they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost. They thought he was a ghost. And they cried out. For they all saw him, and they were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them. And the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. Utterly astounded. Jesus undoubtedly had compassion on them. He did. It's sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And he sees them, and he comes to them walking on water. And the disciples scream in terror. They scream in terror. It really means they, they shouted up is what really is said there. They, they screamed up. They were, just, they were terrified. Some phantasm, some ghost is going to overtake the boat, capsize it, destroy us, t- cause us to sink, take us under. They were terrified, verse uh, 51 says there. Unless we judge them too harshly, let's remember, it's pitch black. This is before electricity, remember? They're out on the water. It's pitch black. Too dark to see. It's hard to see. I mean, maybe the moon is bright that night. And they're out on the ocean. And they see this large shadow gliding over the water before they ever even see him. Maybe a shadow is just coming. The moon's at Jesus' back. And they see it gliding across the water looming over the waves. And remember, they're on the water now. They're on the water. And something unknown is approaching the boat. The moment that German U-boat fired that fateful torpedo at the Lusitania, there were a lot of people on deck who saw it, actually. Many that even lived and were able to share what they saw. 
For them, it was a clear day, not even dark, so it was a clear day for them. It was around 2 p.m., and Larson records this. Oliver Bernard, he was standing in the veranda cafe, leaning lazily against the window, looking out at the view, and he saw what seemed to be the tail of a fish, probably a periscope. (laughs) Well off the starboard side, next a streak of froth began arcing across the surface toward the ship, and an American woman came up beside him and said, that isn't a torpedo, is it? He recorded, I was too spellbound to answer, he said. I felt absolutely sick. Spellbound, sick, terror, probably a bit like the disciples. Something unknown approaching the boat that could destroy them, what they thought. What's that coming towards the boat? Look, look at the shadow. I mean, look at the waves. Look out, it, The waves rise and fall, but it doesn't. It's staying level above the waves. What in the world is it? What evil is upon us, they thought. That's the picture. That's what's going on. It's it's really meant to be that dramatic. It's meant to be powerful. Who but God could walk on water? Who but God could glide across waves? They're falling. They're coming up. And he's just across the surface. Even Job says it. Job knows it hundreds of thousands of years before. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. Look at that. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes by me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. Jesus is God walking on waves. You have to wrestle with that. So many people have tried to explain it away, um, come up with some sort of excuse. You have to wrestle with that. A person walked on water. It's not Hollywood special effects. That's easy today. That's nothing today. It's not. It's a person walking on water. But there's even more going on here. Job says, when he passes by me, he says too. Look at verse 48. Uh, About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. That's Jesus. He meant to pass by them. What does that mean? Uh, It's kind of a curious phrase. A lot of people have tried to figure out, what did he not want to be seen? Was he, I mean, there's all kinds of uh, things that commentators have said on what does that verse mean? He meant to pass by them? I think the best understanding for it is this. I think we're supposed to think of, it's a big word, we're going to explain it, a theophany. I think we're supposed to think of a theophany. And we've got to explain what that means, right, if it's going to matter or make any sense to us today. A theophany was this. It was an appearance of uh, or a manifestation of God himself in the Old Testament. It was a manifestation or an appearance of God. The most famous one being to Moses, right? We know that. He appeared to him. Look at the language now. I want you to catch it here. Then Moses said, now show me your glory. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no one may see me and live. And then the Lord said, okay, there's a place near me where you may stand on a rock. When my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock. And I'll cover you with my hand until I have passed by. 
Then I'll remove my hand. You'll see my back, but my face must not be seen. As God passes by, Moses in the Old Testament. So the God of the Old Testament, who is Jesus, is going to pass by the disciples so that they too will see the glory of God and believe in him. They will see Jesus for who he truly is as he walks on water, God in flesh. That's what we're meant to see, I think, by that language. Pass by as he did with Moses. No one but God could do this. I'm going to pass by them. But Mark even keeps this going in his portrayal of Jesus as God as Jesus comes to the boat too. It's not only a theophany, an appearance of God in a special way, but what were his words to the disciples? Look at verse 50. What does he say to them? Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Jesus says to them, hey, cheer up. Cheer up. I know it looks bad. I sent you out here, though. You're exactly in the place where I put you. Don't be afraid. And he gets in the boat, and the storm, again, as we read, immediately stops. But he says, it is I. Let me give you a clear picture of how that really looks in the original language and see if that helps. It looks like this. Take heart, I am. Take heart, I am. Do not be afraid. You know what that term is? That's that uh, term that God gave himself when he appeared to Moses in Exodus 3. When Moses said, what's your name? What's your name? And he said, I'm the great I am. I am is what he said. I am. Jesus declares to the disciples in that moment, as, you, as he sees them walking in the water, I am. I am. Take heart. Do not be afraid. I am the great I am. He's telling them, I'm God. So for us too then, see that today and take heart today in that. See and take heart, as he said to the disciples. Don't miss the significance here. That Jesus comes to them in their darkest moment when they were exhausted when they were beat up, they'd been rowing for eight hours. And this is how he often comes to us. So we realize in those moments, you've had those, you're exhausted, you feel like you've been rowing against the wind for eight hours. And we realize the futility of trusting in our own strength. I so often need that. And I get caught off guard by how much I am trusting in my own strength, my own accomplishments, my own track record, my own ability to pull the, row, the oars. And he does that so we will see it and take heart and depend upon him. That's what he's doing here. The waves were their biggest fear. You know, whatever you're facing, it's your biggest fear right now. But the waves were also Jesus' pathway to their hearts in that moment. Your trial is God's pathway even to your heart as the waves were to the disciples. I like how this hymn sums it up nicely. It says this, Not our choice, the wind's direction. Unforeseen, the calm or gale. The great ocean swells before us and our ship seems small and frail, doesn't it? 
fierce and gleaming is thy mystery, drawing us to shores unknown. Plunge us on with hope and courage till thy harbor is our home. That's what we got to see today. That's what, that's what he's wanting his disciples to see. But they didn't quite see it yet. They didn't quite see it. Even though I think it's Matthew that records that they worship. Even in their worship, Mark says in verse 52, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Even in the midst of these miracles, they'd just seen them multiply matter with the feeding of the 5,000. They'd just seen him walk on water, and their hearts are still stubborn. But I'm actually encouraged by that today. And I hope you are too, because I see myself in them. Okay, maybe Jesus did these things for those guys. But you don't know. You don't know my situation. Or maybe he loved them, but you don't know what's gone on in my life, Pastor Jeff. You don't know what I've done. I mean, maybe he was going to help those guys, but me? I don't even think he sees it. And if he does, look at my life. I, I can tell you he doesn't care. And sometimes even, I think, in the distorted workings of our heart, even when his help comes to us, it's not what we expected. Or it's not the way we would have wanted it to work out. And sometimes I think we even push it away because it wasn't what we expected. Walking on water was not what they expected, but it's what they got. If he is God, your situation is not outside of his control. And he does does. Think of the words. Take heart, I am, do not be afraid. Take heart, I am, do not be afraid. He sees and cares. Well, how do we know in that moment when the disciples' hearts are still hard? How do we know? He doesn't rebuke them. He could have been like, you guys, the bread, the water, come on. He doesn't rebuke them. He says, all right, let's just keep moving forward. And they head into shore, and I will show you more. I'll show you more. Your hearts are still hard. I'll show you more. And he goes to heal a bunch of people with his disciples to show them more. It's our third takeaway this morning. Jesus responds in patience and compassion to our failures and hurts. He responds in patience and compassion to our failures and hurts as we see him doing here. Well, they didn't make it to Bethsaida. It's where they were supposed to go. Uh, the, the passage goes on to say it blew them off course and they ended up at Gennesaret and they parked their boat and the crowds flock again, don't they? John records that uh, people even rode over from the area where he did the miracle of the feeding uh, just to see Jesus. They realized that uh, well, the boat had left and that Jesus was gone so they rode over and they, they found him. And his closest companions conti- continue at this moment not to understand him. And rather than condemn him, he sees their need, as we said, and continues to expose them to who he is. And he sees the crowd there, too, coming in with their needs, their hurts, their physical needs, their illnesses. And he serves in that moment. His closest now, his closest aren't getting it. He had every right to get angry, frustrated, condemn them. And he says, you know what? What does he do? He continues to serve. He continues to serve. 
The people were desperate with sick family members, so desperate for physical healing that family members, did you see it there, they'd bring them out to the marketplace and, and lay them there. Uh, that means that the marketplace is probably the best chance they'd have of seeing him in a town or city. It was crowded. There was people. He'd go there to do ministry, so they just brought him out on beds. That's all they had. They had their sick relative on a bed. That's all they had. And they took them out to the marketplace to see Jesus, that maybe just by chance they'd touch his garment and be healed. That's all they had. But they took a step of faith, didn't they? Let's just take him out to the marketplace. At the very least in this story, those people believed that Jesus could do something about it, that he could heal them. At the very least, they brought their loved ones. You ever been in the hospital with a loved one? And you are just waiting for the doctor to make his rounds. He's like, come on, where is he? Where is she? You know, give us some update. Give us some clue of what's going on. Just give us the test results. Tell us something. Where's the doctor? You've had those moments, haven't you? And so you advocate. What do you do? You walk out into the hall, don't you? Where is somebody? We need somebody in here, right? We got it. Where's where's the nurse? You go and advocate for your, your loved one. That's what's going on here. Let's just, let's just seek him out. Let's just take some steps of faith and just get him out of the marketplace and maybe they'll touch him. And that's to be our response too. When you know and embrace in your heart that Jesus is the one who declares, take heart, it's I, do not be afraid, we're emboldened to act, to step out in faith as they did. Encourage. And we seek him more. Believe him more. Take more steps of faith as that works from our head into our heart. And so here's our final application then. So seek and believe and take steps of faith. Seek and believe and take steps of faith. Who's the one disciple that it's easiest to make fun of? We all know it. Yeah, you know it. I saw some people mouthing it. Peter. It's Peter, isn't it? It's Peter. In all these stories, I mean, he gets it a lot. I mean, it's just, he's just, he does it to himself, really, or puts his foot in his mouth. But you know, Mark doesn't record it. Mark does not record it. But uh, another gospel account does. None of those other disciples, when Jesus walked on the water, sat on the edge of the boat. And decided to put their feet over in, over the side and look at Jesus walking on the water and decide, I think I'm going to go out to him. None of the other 12 did it. Matthew records that Peter said, Lord, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. That's crazy. <laughs> it is. I mean, it really is. And Jesus said, come. And Peter is the only other person in the history of humanity that ever walked on water. Jesus said, come. Now, sure, he sunk, but he took a couple steps first, didn't he? He did sink, but he took a couple steps first. But Christ saved him, and Christ came to him, and he pulled him up, and Christ took the steps. Maybe he was far way off. Maybe Christ ran at that moment. They saw him sprint on water, maybe. <laughs> and he pulls Peter up out of the water, and he pulls him up. Christ took the steps towards him, and that's where we end today. That's where we end today, with Christ, who took step 
after step, after step, after step for his disciples. And followed the, the step after step after step to the cross. That's what he did. So take heart, it is I, have no fear, would take on cosmic proportions at the cross. Not just in the moment of the storm, but cosmic proportions now. When he would die for you. Die for sinners. Take those final steps and go into the greatest storm, into the wrath and fury of God for you. He went into the greater storm than a few waves. He went in to pay the price for your sin, the greatest storm ever, the storm of God's judgment for your sin. And that's what the table shows us. That's where we end today, that there were steps that took Jesus to the cross, but there were steps that also brought him from the grave, meaning giving cosmic proportion to be of good cheer, I am, do not be This table, this bread and juice, they're here to represent today the steps that the real body made, the real body that walked on water, and the real body that was nailed to the cross for you. Paul records that this table, and Jesus himself says it, that is for those who place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It doesn't make sense to come to his meal in intimacy if you yourself yet haven't repented haven't turned from your sin to the great I am and placed your faith in him. So I ask you today, it's not, it's not my judgment on you. It's not anybody in this congregation looking down the aisle at you, seeing who takes and who doesn't. But I encourage you, maybe today is the day you come to him in faith. But he reserves it for those who can say today, I believe he's the great I am who died for me. As we come now, let's take just another moment or two, as even we had some time earlier, to repent and confess. Let's just take some silent moment in prayer to continue to prepare your heart um, to approach the one who walked on water. Let's do that.